0: You guys may be seated. Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Alex Schroeder. If I've not had the chance to meet you yet, welcome. We're glad that you're here. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open there. The Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once said this, we are all born legalists. Spurgeon's claim is that the default religion that all of us have from birth is to be a legalist. Legalism is that belief that salvation or God's love or God's blessings are something that we must earn by doing the right thing that would make God happy. So perhaps that's a new term for you this morning but I wouldn't expect that it's an entirely new idea, right? This false religion of do what God requires and he'll bless you. Offer the right sacrifice and you'll get the rain for your crops. Do the right thing and terror or disaster will be avoided. Or maybe even just simply this, obey the rules and God will love you. While this is, So natural to all of us, we must be clear, this legalistic way of thinking is a false gospel. Legalism has no category of grace, only justice, right? Good things could never happen to bad people. So do your best to make sure you're not bad. And this false gospel is a danger to you, to me, and to our church. Legalism has blinded. Many to seeing and understanding the true gospel. It's crippled Christians from finding the true joy and freedom that's found in Christ. And it's also corrupted entire churches and denominations that have no love and charity anymore. And this false theology is so easy to fall back into. Even in recent days... A pastor was on Twitter sharing a video that his church, after years of studying the Bible, has now come to the conviction that salvation is not complete without good works. This is a subtle form of legalism, just like all of those other forms we're used to experiencing. So in our passage this morning, we're going to see the chief legalists of Jesus' own day, the Pharisees. Instead of trusting in God's great promise to send a redeemer, they took their own redemption into their own hands, and they looked to their own keeping of God's law, hoping that getting it exactly right would put God on their side. So we'll see how this sort of legalistic theology does not mix well with the King Jesus and his upside-down kingdom. So I invite you to read with me. In Matthew 15, verses 1 to 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he does not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly father has planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's consider our first point this morning, a concern. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 provides some of the setting as we enter into this story. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. That seems like an ominous introduction to a story. It's sort of like the school principal and the superintendent joined together and happened to show up at the playground to see what the kids are up to. And not just that, it's not just that they're coincidentally there. The principal and the superintendent have traveled a couple days to make sure that they're there on time. Do you see this and feel this mounting tension? These two parties of religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, have joined together and traveled from Jerusalem all the way up to northern Israel and Galilee to watch Jesus. This opposition is growing, but it's not new in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has already been accused of committing blasphemy by these men. He's been questioned by them about hanging out with sinners. They've accused him of being possessed and doing his miracles by demonic power. And let's not forget that a couple chapters ago when Jesus questioned their beloved Sabbath day, they plotted to kill him. And so now we have this delegation of religious leaders sent from Jerusalem to get some eyes on this rising rabbi, Jesus. And they don't just come to watch, they come to question. In verse 2, we see their question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And this question actually makes some sense clearly they had heard some reports about Jesus and his ministry. We don't know exactly what they'd heard, but likely they heard about some of his powerful miracles. And those miracles would certainly call into question whether or not Jesus had become ritually unclean. Jesus had healed lepers by touching them. That would have made him unclean. He was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, people that would not have been concerned about being clean. He had touched a dead girl's hand and raised her up. Once again, making him unclean. So it makes sense that these reports would be circling and that their conclusion must be this new teacher is unclean. And so we want to make sure that he knows and he is doing the right practices. And so they bring their question. One important detail we can't miss is found in the middle of their question. What is the standard that they're curious that Jesus might be rejecting? The tradition of the elders. What is that? This piece is crucial for us to get what's going on in this story. Within Judaism of Jesus' day, there was a growing set of teachings that were being regarded as oral tradition. And this oral tradition was in addition to the written word of god in the mosaic law often the oral tradition the purpose of it was to explain how to obey god's law in everyday life a good example of how this works would maybe be something like the sabbath the mosaic law forbids working on the sabbath but that leads to a good question what is work and what is not work if we want to not work we want to know what is work and avoid that right And so these rabbis would hash out what should be considered work and what should not be considered work. And eventually they would arrive at a decision or sometimes there'd be two different schools of thought and they would debate back and forth. But either way, the leaders of the day were trying to answer these questions about how do we obey the law? And this oral tradition that is alongside the commands of Scripture began to have as much authority in the eyes of the religious leaders as the commands of Scripture themselves. So it's worth us recognizing that in Judaism, there were two authorities at play. There was the written commands of God in Scripture and this oral teaching, this oral tradition. And the Pharisees believed they both mattered. And it's in regards to this oral tradition that they come to Jesus and ask, are you listening and obeying the tradition of the elders? The particular issue they bring up has to do with washing hands. It seems as if they have some belief that if your hands were dirty and you ate food, you either would or you could make yourself ritually unclean. Over the course of time, this oral tradition actually got written down in books. Today, we have them preserved as what's called the Mishnah. And so these are a couple years, a couple centuries after Jesus' time, but we have good reason to believe that some of these same teachings were the same teachings being talked about in Jesus' day. And there's one Mishnah called the Mish- Mishnah Yadayim that covers what you should do about washing your hands. And there's like five chapters in one of these books dedicated to washing hands. Uh, one commentator summarizes it well, and He says, that these chapters specify the quantity of water to be used, the proper utensils that must be used for pouring the water, the condition of the water, the posture to be used while pouring the water, and the precise way to hold your hands while you're pouring the water. So it seems really plausible that they're coming to Jesus with very precise and well-known expectations of what Jesus should be doing. And they want to know, Jesus... Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Let's consider Jesus' response now. This will lead to our second point a confrontation. Jesus says in verse three, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus' response contrasts those two authorities in their minds. There's the commands of God and then the traditions of the elders. And Jesus says, you can't pit them against each other and have them on equal plane. There are clear commands in Scripture, and your tradition should not violate or have authority over the commands of Scripture. In other words, your entire question, Pharisees, is flawed from the beginning. If you had rightly understood the supremacy of God's word, his clear commands, then we would never be having this conversation. Let me just step away from this, and I think this is really helpful for us to see what Jesus believed about God's word. One, Jesus believed that there was a way to know God's commandments, right? And he doesn't use the word Bible or canon or scripture or anything like that, but it seems like that's what Jesus is pointing to. Jesus had a belief in a written set of books and he was considering that as the authoritative source of knowledge and truth for God's people and he also believed that that written source should be elevated above any religious thinking of the day didn't matter how great of a rabbi you were if you're out of line with the the books then you're a problem we submit to the books and we follow Jesus' example by loving God's word but notice this, Jesus doesn't say that valuing tradition and the commands of God is like a seesaw where like they kind of go back and forth. Sometimes one will be higher than the other. He says that if you value tradition too much, you break the commands of God. Do you see that in verse three? Why do you break the commands of God? Even follow down with me in verse, in verse six, you make void the word of God. Jesus' accusation against them is severe. But how does, it, how does that work out? How are they breaking God's commands? Well, it's worth us asking. We've considered what the Mishnah, the oral tradition, says about hand washing. What is God's commands about hand washing? There are a couple passages in the Old Testament that mention ritual, ritual washings before we eat. A good example of this would be Leviticus 22. Verse 4 to 7. Let me read that for us. None of the offspring of Aaron, who has a leprous disease, may eat of the holy things until he is washed. Whoever touches anything unclean shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he's bathed his body in water. So there's certainly data related to ritual washing And eating food, but notice the particularity of Leviticus 22. It's particular because of who must do it, the offspring of Aaron. This is for priests, not for everybody. Notice it's particular here. What are they eating? The holy things. This is portions of food that have been given to the temple. So these are particular instructions to particular people about particular things. And yet, the Pharisees are saying, any meal, any person, any time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what we call this? We call this going above the line. We didn't come up with that phrase. Uh, this is a phrase that's picked up by Simeon Trust preaching workshops, which you might know that a lot of our pastors and staff love Simeon Trust. We host one here. So they describe this going above the line. The idea of that phrase is this. The teaching of Scripture is the line. And our job as readers of Scripture, as teachers of Scripture, is to stay on that line. We teach, we say, we do what God says. If we say less than the Bible, we're going under the line. If we say more than the Bible, then we're going above the line. And these Pharisees and these traditions of the elders are going way above the line. And what happens when we, in our personal life or in our corporate life, go above the line? We break God's commands. The irony of all of this is the Pharisees aren't just over the line. They're also under the line. They're doing both. This is what happens when we live legalistically. We go over the line in some areas of our lives that matter to us, that become the standard that we look at most, and then we go under the line in other areas. We're not, it's never consistent. We actually see Jesus say this to them in verse four through six. Follow with me beginning in verse four. For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you've gained from me is given to God, he does not honor his father. So what's Jesus talking about here? Jesus is addressing a common practice of the day called Corbin. If there's anyone in here named Corbin, I'm sorry. Your, your, your name's associated with an unhelpful religious practice in ancient Judaism. So Matthew doesn't give us much background to this Corbin. He actually doesn't even use that word in this passage. But it seems like this is exactly what he's pointing to. Even Mark, who shares this same story in Mark 7, uses that word Corbin instead. So what's the practice? The practice was that people could dedicate material things to the Lord in the temple. And yet, when they chose to dedicate those things, they did not immediately give away rights to use and possess that thing. So it'd be like saying, I'm going to dedicate this field that I own to the Lord. But from now until I die, I can use it. But I can't give it to anybody else. It belongs to the Lord. What actually seems to have happened over time was that people would dedicate things intentionally so that others wouldn't have access to it when they died. It was an intentional thing done to cut people off from material wealth. Here's a really, I think, funny example of it. There was a bone box found with someone's body in it, and on the side of it is an inscription that says, all that a man may find to his profit in this box is Corbin to God, and you can't have it. And I think it's ironic, right? The man died and made sure to tell his family, bury my possessions with me. They're supposed to be God's. So clearly he wanted them to be dedicated to the temple, right? Since they buried them with him in the ground, right? This shows the hypocrisy of the practice. It's a, many times it was done as a way to withhold caring for others. And Jesus points to the very heart of it. There are people that you Pharisees are encouraging... To dedicate things to the Lord and it is preventing them for, of, of being able to care for aging parents. They're not honoring the clear commands of honor your father and mother. But they're doing this thing that isn't even talked about in the Bible. Giving land to the temple. And Jesus says that this process of lifting up their traditions, minimizing God's commands is breaking God's word, making it void. So what does Jesus think about this way of living? Look at me in verse 7. Jesus condemns these men as hypocrites. The praise of God is on their lips, but it's not in their heart. They worship him, but it's a fake worship. They're working really hard to make sure these traditions are kept, and passed down, but they're not worried about obeying God's words. So at the heart of religious hypocrisy is this, looking like you worship God when you're worshiping your own man-made conventions, making sure that your hands are squeaky clean before you eat, but that your heart is loving other things more than God himself. This looks like mouths that are engaged in lip service but hearts that are unaffected in a worship service. Maybe that's you this morning. That you've been going through the religious motions, showing up on Christmas and Easter and periodically at other times of the year, participating in a life of a church like you think you ought to do. Yet in the midst of all of it, your heart is unengaged and unimpacted. See from Jesus' own mouth what he thinks of you. And what he thinks of this half-hearted, lukewarm devotion. There are no partial members of Jesus' family, and there are no fair-weather fans to the kingdom of God. Well, before we keep condemning these Pharisees, let's pause to reflect. Are we liable to do this same sort of religious tradition? So of course we are. We could probably even look back in recent history and think of a number of examples, the way the church has failed in this. Without going into all the things that could be said about this, we're familiar, perhaps, with traditions of Christianity that have said that any form of drinking, alcohol, is Sinful. And it makes sense that drunkenness is certainly sinful, and yet they have gone above the line to say that any partaking in alcohol at all is also sinful. We also might be familiar of Christian traditions that have said things like dancing are sinful, without any clear declaration from Scripture that that it is right, or perhaps we personally have experience or know someone with experience of, who's had a divorce demonized, even though it was done for biblical reasons. There are these religious traditions that we've certainly failed in. And church, let's even get closer. We can look at other churches and go, yeah, we've seen that in their lives, and we are still liable to do it here. It can happen in all sorts of areas in our lives. Like the exact amount or the exact way that we go about personal devotions. Can we elevate that quiet time of 45 minutes? It's got, it can't be less? Could we do that? Of course. Could we have an expectation that we require for all people of how much you are involved in the life of a church and service in the church? Of course. Is it right to serve? Yes. Is there a clear expectation of how much all of us must be doing it? No. Maybe it's the particular parenting philosophy you and your spouse have adopted. Or maybe it's the educational option that you've chosen. Can we elevate that and demonize and think less of others because of what they've chosen? What about money management? Dave Ramsey's awesome, he's got great ideas, but there's more than one way to be faithful. Or maybe in recent memory, we can think of some really complicated social and cultural situations where we thought, If you didn't do it our way, I don't believe you're faithful as a Christian anymore. This can go on and on. We are always liable to the same way of legalistic thinking. But how do we guard ourselves? How do we guard ourselves from developing an oral tradition to the demise of God's own word? I think Jesus provides us the antidote here at the heart of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, was trading God's word for their own thoughts. They weren't satisfied in what God gave them, so they added to it. So a huge application for us to avoid this sort of hypocrisy is we must be the people, we must be a church that seeks to love God's word, to know God's word, to submit to God's word, defend God's word above anything else even if that means that it takes us away from those traditions we grew up with. But it's worth reflecting here, too. Jesus is not anti-tradition. He does speak against the tradition of the Pharisees, but he does so by arguing for an older tradition, the scriptural tradition. And so he's only anti-tradition when tradition pushes us away from God's clear commands. So don't think... See, Jesus agrees with me. The church is too traditional. It's antiquated. It needs to progress like the rest of society. Jesus doesn't condemn tradition or traditional beliefs. He condemns devaluing the word of God. So our goal is to be people who know it, who submit to it, who lift it up in all that we do. And anything else puts us at risk of being condemned as hypocrites. Let's consider our final section this morning a clarification. There's a shift that happens between verses 9 and 10. We aren't entirely sure what happens to the Pharisees. We don't know if they leave. We don't know if they're still there. But in verse 10, Jesus turns his attention to talking to the crowds that were there witnessing this interaction. Verse 12, Jesus turns his attention to talking to the disciples. And in this In these two conversations, we're going to see two clarifying things. Let's consider the first one. We see the blindness of the Pharisees. The blindness of the Pharisees. This teaching of Jesus is radical to them. And in verse 12, the disciples let Jesus know just how radical they think it is. Right? Verse 12, the disciples said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus isn't worried about their offense, nor is he worried about ruffling their feathers in any way. Jesus wants to be clear about what it means to be a member of the kingdom. And that means someone who has a high view of God's word, that knows it and submits to it and nothing else. And then Jesus gives us two word pictures to depict the status of these Pharisees. First, he says they're a plant that will be rooted up by God. This story that he uses here seems to bear some of the same images and language of a parable that we considered in Matthew 13. In that parable that we talked about a couple weeks ago, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a field that has wheat growing in it and weeds growing in it at the same time. And Jesus says at the end of the age, both will be taken up and the weed will be thrown away. And it seems that Jesus is saying, do you want to know who those weeds are? Religious hypocrites. Those who long to be known for being religious, that have this outward lip service, but don't have real heart worship. And that's the state of these Pharisees. They're not of the Father. They are not citizens of the kingdom." Next, Jesus compares them to blind people that are tasked to be leaders to other people who are blind. We can imagine what will happen in this scenario. They have no idea where they're going. They don't see the dangers and pitfalls. And then they fall in the pit. Utter disaster. This language of pit certainly is a metaphorical way of saying there will be significant judgment on these sort of blind, religious hypocrites. Just how blind are they really? They have God's word, and they know it better than anyone, but they can't see that they're hypocrites. Even as this narrative goes on, this interaction where Jesus is so clear to them, condemning them from their own prophecies in Isaiah, we have no reason to think they listen at all. So they're so blind they don't see it, and they're so blind they don't listen. They're blind to see that this washing of hands isn't actually making them clean And they're blind to God's own son in front of them. They're giving him a hard time about clean hands, and yet they're going to go later have a powwow about how to kill him. What kind of blindness is this? So friends, be warned. If this language of hypocrite isn't enough, see that the declaration of Christ about you is that you're blind. And Christ can give us sight. But don't stay blind. Cry out today. We have another clarification in this passage. And it's a clarification about the nature of defilement. The Pharisees came and asked Jesus a question in verse 2. Why do you not wash Your hands before you eat. And do you notice he never answers that question? At least not when he's talking to them? But then in verse 10, he turns his attention to the crowds. It's as if Jesus says, I know you're so blind, Pharisees, giving you an answer is not worth my time. But these crowds, maybe they'll listen. These disciples, maybe they will hear and understand. So Jesus in verse 10 says to the crowds, Hear and understand. And then he gives the answer. And then later, his disciples, who still lack understanding, come to him, and he gives them understanding by clarifying even more in verses 16 to 20. So what's the answer? Why does he not wash his hands? Look with me in verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. True defilement has nothing to do with external things. It has nothing to do with the food that we eat or the hands that we eat them with. All of that stuff is just passing through and it's not corrupting us as it makes its way there. The reality is actually far worse. We're already corrupt. True defilements not found outside of us, it's found within us. We all have a sin-sick heart. What does Jesus mean by that phrase, the heart? In our culture, when we hear that, we can't help but start thinking about like Valentine's Day and affection and things we love. And that's certainly a part of the heart, but the way the Bible presents the heart is far more complicated. The heart is the control seat of the human. It's the inner part of man where someone's thoughts are found, their beliefs, their affections, and all of their actions originate. And so this organ is a thinking organ, it's an acting organ, it's a believing organ, and a desiring organ. It's the true expression of who we are. So true defilement doesn't start from without, outside of us, it comes from within us. Notice that Jesus says, it's not just the things we love. The first thing he mentions in verse 19 is that thoughts, evil thoughts, reside in the heart. But it's not just the thoughts. Murder. Do you know your heart can murder? Your heart can commit adultery and sexual immorality. This is the starting place of all of these external sins that we think about. So anything, whether good or bad, that we do is an expression of the heart within us. So in that way, our actions, our beliefs, the choices, it's like a thermometer that shows us the state of our hearts. So if bad's coming out, bad's in. Yeah, that's true. And Jesus says, it's not about bad coming in, it's about bad's already in and it's coming out. That's right. That's right. This is a bit of an aside, but it's just worth saying, if what Jesus says about the heart's true, then the way that we go about growing as Christians should be impacted by this. Yeah. If we're wanting to grow as followers of Christ, then we don't just deal with external things around us. We must believe that the problems around us are problems, but yet there's a heart in the problem that's acting a certain way in the problem that believes certain things, some things that may be wrong, that's doing certain things that may be sinful. And we need to deal with those things as much, maybe more, than what we deal with that outside of us. So Jesus clarifies for us the nature of defilement. And it has nothing to do with any of these ritual clean categories from the Old Testament. Not about the clean hands we eat with, or the people with skin diseases we bump shoulders with, or eating of things like pigs or shellfish. And so this is why they're not washing hands because they have a real understanding about what is our problem before God. It's sin. And the Pharisees totally misunderstood this. So if we want to be right before God, we want to have this right view that Jesus teaches. We want to believe that righteousness is not something that we... Conform to externally by doing the right things. Instead, we want to have hearts that are clean and that are pure. So this is the problem with this living and acting legalistically. It's flawed from the start. Legalism believes that there are some things that we can do to be good enough. It believes that we can wash enough or we can avoid enough. And in the end, it's a system that over-promises and under-delivers. Because salvation's not attainable by what we do. It's never right in our own hands to grab hold of. All of those empty promises just end up being a giant burden on our back. Instead of freedom... Legalism enslaves. Instead of being washed, legalism drowns. These Pharisees will never get right with God, with this view that they have, and neither will we. We can't fix our source of defilement by doing anything external to us. But praise be to God that he can't. And not only can he, God has promised that he would. And he didn't promise to do it by giving us cleaner water to wash with or by giving us more rules to follow. God promised that he would clean us by going to the very source of the problem. And he's going to give us a heart transplant. Ezekiel 36 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you not you sprinkling it on your own hands god's going to sprinkle it and he will we will be clean from all our uncleannesses and from all idols god says he will cleanse us and he will give us a new heart and a new spirit he will put within us the pharisees missed this they missed this promise of god don't miss it today And all of this language of ritual purity from the Old Covenant, the washing, the avoiding certain foods, avoiding certain people with skin diseases or death, all of that was supposed to point us to a need that we would have a Redeemer come, someone who would take care of our biggest problem, the problem that started it all in the garden of sin against a holy God. All of that in the Old Covenant is a sign It was supposed to point us to our need to be forgiven and redeemed. And the Pharisees missed the sign. And Jesus is now clarifying, you missed it. You're off the reservation. You're way out there. You're not in the kingdom. As Autumn read for us, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall dwell in his holy place? David, as he's writing this, is looking forward to a one who will fulfill those promises. One who actually has clean hands and a pure heart. He knows he doesn't have it. And there's no hope in these ritual actions to really clean the heart. And he's looking forward to Christ. And so may we not hear this exhortation of have clean hands and a pure heart. That's not the point. The point is to look to the one who has clean hands, who has a pure heart, and who promises to give that to you if you would put your faith in him. Listen how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Brothers, sisters, this is our hope. We don't look for hope in external actions. We don't read God's commands and say, let me build up this giant system so that I can make sure I do it exactly right and then God will love me. We don't sin and then beat ourselves up for it and plead, God, you must hate me so much. That's not this. What Jesus and the kingdom proclaim is defilement is in the heart and Jesus comes to give a new heart. So, we rejoice in this. We have freedom in this. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And if you don't know this, you're missing out. You are blind. You are outside the kingdom. No matter how good you think you are, if you're missing the freedom found in trusting in God's provision of a spotless lamb, you're missing out. So, brothers, sisters, let's rejoice. Let's take hope in the in the purity that Christ gives freely. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are a cleaning God that loves to do the work of cleaning sinners from the inside out. Lord, you've done this work because you are good and you love us. Our identity is not rooted in our actions both good or in our sinful actions. When we are in Christ, that is our greatest identity. Father, give us great joy in that truth today and every day that we walk with you. Father, may we fight to love your word more and obey Christ in every way. It's in his name that we pray, amen.